Um, good evening. I'm, um, my name is Ingrid Lunt. I'm vice-principal of this college. Um, before I ask Mary Daly to um, introduce our speaker, I just want to acknowledge the very sad news that our principal, Professor Sir David Watson, died yesterday. And it, it's a great sadness for the college today um, for, to, to know, to hear this news. Um, David was an absolutely staunch supporter of this series and in fact as Mary will say Mary and David thought up this this theme and this fantastic series together so I hope you'll appreciate that it's a sad day for us but it's a very happy day that we can continue with the GTC lectures so I'd like to bid you all a very warm welcome to this third one in the series of GTC lectures. Thanks. And I'd like to add my welcome and my pleasure that you could join us uh, this evening, whether it's for the first, second, or this, the third lecture in uh, the Green Templeton College lecture series uh, this year. I'd especially like to welcome our speaker, uh, Dr. Karen Wells, at this point, I always have to interrupt my spiel to give you the safety announcement and to tell you that uh, should a fire alarm go off, it will be serious. It's not a test, and you should make your way out either from the back exit or from this exit and gather in the green uh, grass area outside uh, the building. As I explained at the last uh, two sessions, uh, the GTC lecture series is dedicated to exploring a contemporary topic or theme from an interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary perspective. The theme cho is chosen annually, and it's chosen to uh, speak or reflect the mission of the college, uh, which is to improve human welfare um, in our increasingly uh, complex world. Um, in the words of our principal, Sir David Watson, uh, Green Templeton College is an academic community with an active and engaged intellectual approach rather than a reflective one. And as Ingrid said, he and I work closely together in choosing not only the theme, but also the speakers for this year's session. The World's Child series is intended to raise questions about the changing nature of childhood uh, in the global world and how our adult world responds to and is indeed complicit in that changing nature of childhood. We take forward that broad topic this evening by considering childhood as a global and globalised phenomenon. And Karen is going to approach this topic from the perspective of violence. Um, this seems an extremely important subject in its own right, but it's especially important in light of the two main insights that inform the lecture series. First, the need to be cognizant of the increasing interconnectedness of lives around the world, and especially those of children, and second, the belief that the future requires better sharing of responsibilities for all children. Our speaker, Karen Wells, is from the Department of Geography, Development and Environment Studies at Birkbeck University of London. 
Karen is assistant dean there, as well as being program director for <coughs> international childhood studies and lecturer in international development. Um, she got her first degree in African uh, history and religious studies from SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies, University of London, and uh, took both a PhD and a, a MSc at the London School of Economics. She has published widely on the topic of childhood, managing two books alone in the last year, take note. And one of them is this book, um, which... Uh, a group of us in my department, uh, Social Policy and Intervention, is studying at the moment. And this book is entitled Childhood in a Global Perspective. And she also published a second book on childhood youth and violence in global contexts. A long seam in Karen's research has been to investigate how international politi political economy, that is war, uh, international law, global capitalism, for example, impacts on children and childhood. A specific focus of her research is on representation of violence and suffering and how war and other forms of violence affect children's lives. For example, in mobilizing youth migration or, or and or youth military recruitment. Her work reaches across the world for its empirical evidence and she adopts a methodological approach that is broad-ranging, broad but she has a particular interest in non-talk-based methods, especially visual artifacts and visual culture. She's currently researching uh, the, the, the life history narratives of children who have been fostered into the UK from overseas. So I'd like to give you a big, ask you to give a big welcome to Karen Wells. Um, thank you, Mary, for a very nice introduction and for inviting me um, to speak uh, in this lecture series. Um, <clears throat> so, as Mary says, my, my focus today is on violence in its global context and in relation to, to children and young people. And what I want to explore is how the social status of children as what I think of as not fully proper persons, so not fully recognised as being uh, humans in the same way that adults are, impacts on their experiences globally and comparatively. And in particular, I want to explore a problem that has long preoccupied me, which is this. Why are children, who are almost universally, at least in law, marked out as a specifically vulnerable category of human, more likely to be subjected to violence than other social groups are? It seems to me something of a paradox or, or a conundrum. So the question of the impact of war and conflict on children is a topic that was addressed in this lecture series a couple of weeks ago by Dr Pillay, UN uh, High Commissioner for Human Rights from 2008 to 2014. But my interest in this lecture is not so much on war and political conflict, though I will touch on that, as on these processes of becoming recognised as fully human and the place of different forms of violence on this practice. <coughs> I want to engage with violence, both everyday violence and the violence of war, as practices somehow involved in subjection, by which I mean the double sense of becoming a subject, like recognising yourself to be a particular kind of person, and being subjected to the will of others. So this double meaning of subjection is what I'm interested in, in relation to children and young people. Now, violence has recently been foregrounded 
in relation to children through the UN's most recent report on violence hidden in plain sight. And this is a very welcome move, this increasing interest on violence um, from international agencies. But it doesn't seem to be one that attends fully to why children are subjected to violence and in fact largely presumes that adults and indeed children's peers have been subjecting children to violence through some kind of oversight or absent-mindedness. And in common with many contemporary child-saving movements, the UN and its agencies and other NGOs have increasingly called on children, despite their lack of political power, of economic resources, of social recognition or cultural capital, to remedy the world's problems from overpopulation to unequal development and including violence against themselves, which all kind of enters into this rather peculiar status of the child. This lecture draws on my own research and that of other contributors to the ESRC seminar series, Violence and Childhood, International Perspectives, on which I was PI, one of whom is here, Ginny Morrow. Um, The series led to two publications, a special issue of the Journal of Children's Geographies published in late 2014, and a book twinning practitioners with academics in a series of chapters on everyday violence, the research papers of which I will draw on in this lecture. And I'd like to acknowledge here the stimulating conversations with my co-investigators in the series, and in particular with Heather Montgomery, with whom I co-authored the introduction to the book. Academics and practitioners working on or with children have been heavily influenced by the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, of course, which was adopted in 1989, and particularly Article 12, the so-called Participation Article, which NGOs and Quangos have widely interpreted as demanding children's active participation in law and policymaking. The UNCRC's global governance of children has led to a rethink about the role of children within their families and within society, and about their roles and rights in relation to violence, hence in part this kind of emergence of activity on the part of the UN, going back to the first special report and more recently hidden in plain sight, to think about how, or indeed to uh, uh, explicate and document how violence impacts the lives of children. Now the UNCRC is part of a wider complex of a new governing of global childhood that has then put into circulation a discourse though certainly not a practice, that children are equal with adults, are rights bearers. And it's in this context, alongside some apparently radical shifts in the perception of the family as a hierarchical unit, that the issue of violence against children and the question of appropriate and inappropriate use of force has become recently more problematised. There's also increasing acknowledgement of the economic and social roles children play as well as their agency and ability to participate fully in society. Several scholars have suggested that these shifts are a product of Western individualism. So, for example, Erica Berman, uh, Joe Boyden, Afford Tuan Dancer have all, all argued that this shift has really reflected a kind of move from the West's idea of what it means to be a particular kind of good life or good subject um, and, and an export of that idea or circulation of that idea across the globe. But be that as it may, one of the consequences of a global governance of child saving is the dissemination on a global scale of this idea of the liberal subject, that is to say an autonomous or self-governing rational individual, as one that is not only a way to be human, but the right way to be human. And these ideas have been deeply influential for academics and practitioners alike in the global south as much as the global north. 
Now, childhood studies is a field that has a much more complex, I would say, or, or perhaps active relationship to policy and practice than many other academic disciplines. Like development studies, which I'm also kind of a part of, it seems that Lenin's famous question, what is to be done, is one that academics, as much as practitioners, feel they should address, which is, well, perhaps increasingly less unusual in academic disciplines, but certainly um, until, let's say, the rise of the impact agenda was um, fairly um, separated out to to some degree. The more endangered children appear to be, the more this convergence between practitioners and academics emerges. And necessarily so, it kind of generates a sort of urgency about this particular vulnerable category of human who is subject to particularly awful, at times, forms of violence. And that kind of does generate a certain urgency to both the academic debate and, of course, the the efforts of practitioners to reshape children's lives and protect them from violence. One area of convergence between practitioners and academics on this topic is the attempt to give moral agency to political and economic structures through the concept of structural violence, a concept that has been increasingly deployed in childhood studies and actually in other areas of sociology and social policy to explain why children living in difficult circumstances but not experiencing necessarily physical violence should still be thought of as victims of violence. This concept originates in the political scientist Johann Gultung's 69 paper, 1969, in which he argues, quote, that violence is present when human beings are being influenced so that their actual somatic and mental realisations are below their potential realisations. It seems to me that this definition rests on an implicit assumption that individuals have some potential that is imminent to them, but only realised in particular conditions. It's unclear to me how one would know that an individual's actual somatic and mental outcomes were less than their potential outcomes, since we clearly can't know what they ever were. Gautung's thesis, though, is not, in fact, despite this definition, about the capacities of individuals, but of social groups, and of the conditions that prevent the full flourishing of the human spirit. This idea of structural violence is really a metaphor or a rhetorical device for trying to give the kind of urgency to inequality and deprivation that it is assumed would attend to forms of corporeal violence. He doesn't want to deploy, say, psychological functioning as a measure of normal or potential achievement against which the limiting impact of structural violence could be measured. The purpose of the concept is rather to suggest that the constraints and burdens that inequality places on the lives of the poor are in themselves a form of violence. The attempt is to make visible what Richard Sennett calls the hidden injuries of class and racial oppression. The medical anthropologist Paul Farmer has argued for the efficacy of this concept of structural violence within medical anthropology in explaining the unequal distribution of illness and early death by attending to what he calls the ethnographically invisible. And so we're back to this idea of potentials, the things that we can't see but somehow we recognise must sort of exist. And the phrase signals precisely, the phrase the ethnographically invisible, that we can't see what injury violence has caused and we cannot directly trace the agent of violence to the suffering subject's experience. We can't establish this causal relationship between poverty and inequality and the suffering experienced by a particular individual or indeed social group, in this this instance perhaps children. 
And this is because, he says, structural violence is violence exerted systematically, that is, indirectly, by everyone who belongs to a certain social order. Despite this emphasis on the indirectness of structural violence, Farmer does so want to completely does not want to completely move away from the connection between violence and its impacts on the body. All forms of structural violence, he says, come to have their final common pathway in the material, that is to say, in its impact on bodies. In contrast to this insistence on the importance of the corporeal, uh, Bourgeois and Sherpa Hughes, whose powerful ethnographies of the violence of everyday life, Death Without Weeping, Sherpa Hughes' account of how women deal with early childhood death um, in, a, in a, a neighbourhood in Brazil, and Selling Crack in Our Barrio, which is more about the engagement of young men in uh, criminal gang violence. These ethnographies are placed at the core of anthropological investigations of violence and also linked to that of understanding the role of, ch- of boys, young men particularly, in gang violence and understanding um, the impacts of uh, material deprivation on how parents deal uh, with childhood loss. So they want to conceptualise violence as operating along a continuum, quote, from direct physical assault to symbolic violence and routinized everyday violence, including the chronic, historically embedded structural violence whose visibility is obscured by globalised hegemonies. Here we are again with something we can't see, but we somehow feel is, is real, has real effects. So in this definition, acts anywhere along the continuum, from the physical to the symbolic, should in their view be conceptualised as violence, implicitly, regardless of whether or not they cause bodily harm. For them, it's not the act, but the social and cultural dimensions of violence that give it its force and meaning. Now, it seems to me this is particularly problematic when we think about violence against children, since the social cultural context of physical harm often justifies bodily harm in the name of some other achievement when it comes to children. Moral probity, social acceptance, for example. For sure, the social and cultural give violence its meaning, but that meaning is always contested. And even if adult and child agree that an act of physical injury is not harmful, the body may exert its own, perhaps different, view in its experience, I'm suggesting, of pain. Now, in a review by Bourgeois of his um, ethnographic research over the last 30 years, he unintentionally shows how casting some forms of intense exclusion and inequality as structural violence may obscure the corporeal violence that others experience. He claims that domestic violence by men against women and children is an effect of economic precariousness and the often frustrated search for respect that this leads to. He speaks of, quote, the shift from politicised violence, that is to say the violence that the state or the market does, to intimate violence, that is to say the violence that these men do to their families. He argues that, quote, the street culture that emerges from the drug economy represents a creative response to exclusion and creates new forums for masculine achievement such as gang leadership and drug entrepreneurship. It is predicated, however, he says, upon being expressively aggressive, unexploitable and enmeshed in drugs and violence. Drug drug sellers must engage in public displays of violence to enforce credibility. So he seems to want to link the interpersonal or intimate aggression of poor men, 
towards each other and towards women and children to the effects of the US war on Central America and what he calls the structural violence of the US labour market. In this way, physical violence becomes a responsibility not of individual protagonists, but of structural or institutional forces. Politically, one can understand, perhaps, the progressive urge that lies behind this discursive move, but it's nonetheless very problematic in its inattention to the agency of violent men and the harm experienced by others, including children, at their hands. To use violence as a rhetorical concept or a metaphor is to relinquish its visceral impact. The body has a specific materiality, and assault on personhood may be damaging, but its damage needs to be theorised surely separately from bodily harm. Bodily harm may simultaneously inflict psychic trauma, and whether or not this is the case, or to what extent, may well depend on the symbolic order in which it is enacted. In other words, if somebody hits you, the, psych- the kind of psychic significance of that is, is undoubtedly shaped by the cultural context in which you experience it. But nonetheless, that bodily harm surely still needs to be attended to. And my concern is that this move towards thinking about violence as structural, kind of collapsing everything into that, is that the harms on the body, and particularly on children's bodies, are somehow uh, eclipsed. And why is it particularly important in relation to children? Because children's bodies are different to those of adults. This self-evident fact has been somewhat obscured, I think, by the emphasis within childhood studies on the social construction of childhood and the recognition of children's agency. I would argue that children, because of their physical immaturity, their size, the immaturity of their internal organs, are at a greater risk of harm from violence than adults would be if they were subjected to the same level of assault as a child. Distinguishing between a violent act or a culturally defined legitimate expression of parental authority and responsibility, as many anthropologists want to do, presupposes that cultural legitimation and violence are mutually exclusive terms, but clearly they're not. What else is it, if not violence, to slam a child against a wall? Which is one of the examples Bourgeois and Sherpa Hughes cite. If that violence is culturally legitimated, it is surely no less violent for being so. Violence against children is cloaked by this use of violence as a metaphor for the the effects of inequalities. And children are the least protected of all social groups from interpersonal violence because of their dependency and their physical and social immaturity. As a metaphor for poverty or inequality, structural violence may simultaneously make visible the constraints and psychic injuries on adults of a specific social order and make invisible the direct physical injuries that children are exposed to. So having kind of dealt with structural violence, I'm now going to move on to thinking about the uses of corporeal violence in relation to to social recognition. But The reason I wanted to start with structural violence is to make it clear that this move is not one to somehow incorporate the relationship of violence to social recognition under this rubric of structural violence. I'm talking about real harms, but I'm talking about the kind of cultural logics of those harms, not in order to condone or excuse them, but in order to understand them so as better to try to unravel them, both figuratively and literally. So as I noted in my opening comments... The injunction against violence against children is now a cornerstone of the international governance of childhood. 
However, everywhere, children are subjected to forms of violence that they are supposed to be protected against in the name of their universal rights. This disjuncture between a supposed right and a hegemonic practice incites a question, what work does violence do? Why does it persist? To ask this question is not intended to legitimate injury to children's bodies. It is rather to suggest that unless we lay bare what in any given cultural context the violence of everyday life accomplishes for the entry of children into the social order, for their recognition as human beings and social persons, then we will not be able to make any many meaningful progress on instituting the protections that are supposedly already their birthright. <clears throat> Jill Corbyn has noted that anthropologists have displayed an ambivalence, quote, about culturally sanctioned practices that may cause children pain, suffering or harm. They have gone to great efforts to explain how such rights, although physically painful and emotionally frightening, fall outside the rubric of abuse in that they are collective expressions of cultural values. She points out that not only adults who perform and perpetuate the rights, but also children who are subjected to them, view these rights, however painful and terrifying, as having a positive long-term value. For Corbyn, not unlike Sherpa Hughes, the question is, how do meaning and agency act as mediating forces between violence and its impact? But the difference here is that Corbyn is really trying to understand real corporeal violence. Although these kinds of contexts exist where rights, R-I-T-E-S, in childhood, that are painful, are fully sanctioned by a particular cultural group, they are clearly not contested. The kinds of relatively discrete or bounded cultural spaces that such an assertion seems to depend on have been dissolved, if they ever existed, by the flows and processes of globalisation that stretch across political and cultural borders and hybridise cultural practices. Increasingly, forms of violence against children, particularly outside of the family, are no longer regarded as natural or harmless, but take place within a wider discourse in which children's bodies have a right to be protected. But this right does not easily translate, it seems, into prohibition. Of course, that the meaning of violence can no longer, if it ever could, be traced to discrete and bounded cultural semiotics does not mean that violence and its impact is not mediated by meanings. But perhaps those meanings operate at the more general level of social recognition. Acts of violence may be understood in relation to children and young people in particular as conferring social recognition on either the perpetrator or the subject, and often both. So on the perpetrator of violence, often an adult, or the subject, always a child, and often both. Elaine Scarry, in her book, The Body in Pain, claims that violence unmakes the world. <clears throat> what I understand her to mean by this is that humans make the social world through language and that pain destroys our capacity for symbolic expression and through this our ability to be in and to make the world. But when this claim is applied to children, it loses some of its explanatory power because children are often subjected to pain precisely in order to make the social world. Violence against children, particularly against infants, is not usually intended to be an end in itself. It is intended to produce other ends, specifically to incorporate the child into the social world. Everyday violence against children could be said to take two general forms. 
painful bodily modifications intended to recognise or mitigate children's liminal status, for example, circumcision, and physical punishment for wrongdoing, that is to say, corporal punishment. Unpacking the often heard claim that parents hit their children to ensure that they learn how to behave can illuminate the role of violence in making the world in relation to children. As campaigners against corporal punishment have pointed out, one of the lessons a child logically might learn from being hit is that you should hit people if they behave badly, or simply that the more power you have, the more right you have to do violence to others. Alternatively, imagine that parents hit their children to assert their right to hit their children. That might sound like tautology. It isn't. Through hitting, the parent may demonstrate to others and to themselves their control over and their active attempts to shape children into appropriately moral beings. So they're asserting their right to recognition. Hitting children conveys social recognition on the child and on the parent. I hit you, we might paraphrase them saying, and therefore you belong to me. Or conversely, you belong to me and therefore I hit you. Since a child is marked as belonging to the parent through the parent's rights over him or her, this also means that the child has some social recognition. They're not alone in the world. Someone speaks for them and stands between them and the world. And it seems to me that that complicated relationship between violence and social recognition in relation to the young child in particular, and children up to the ages of 12 are those that experience the most violence, has something to do, the acceptance of that violence by adults and children, has something to do with this complicated desire to be a subject, to be part of the social world. And so at the same time, this social and legal right to hit a child conveys social parenthood on the parent, which is derived from their rights over people. Essential to the concept of everyday life is the sociological task of understanding how we make meaning through interaction. And violence is one form of interaction. And so it's through the events of everyday life that we come to understand at a deep bodily level what it means to belong to a culture with a specific history and geography. The young child's insertion into the symbolic order is seen as being concurrent with the entry into language. It's in this moment that Lacan and his post-structuralist follows locate the loss or the lack that is coterminous with the necessary insertion into the symbolic order. If the bundle of desires and energy that is the infant is to be transformed into a culturally recognised person. But in most, perhaps all cultures, the entry into language is not the start of the infant's entry, or indeed the yet-to-be-born infant's entry into the symbolic order. So this privileging of language that Elaine Scarry posits in The Body in Pain and the role of language in world-making is undone when we think about children because the child enters the symbolic order well before language is part of their life or part of their capacity. The infant's body itself and prior to birth, even the imagination of the infant's body is the site of the child's entry into the symbolic order. This is accomplished not by language, but through the cultural imposition, the cultural stamp of a way of life onto and into the child's body. This inscription of culture onto the child's body involves harm, pain, injury, but harm, pain and injury that are not generally recognised as harm within the immediate symbolic order, but are widely recognised as such outside of the specific social con cultural context into which the child is born. For example... 
Strapping a resistant child into a car seat or a pram involves pushing and holding down the child, their restraint. This may be distressing for child and parent alike, but few would recognise it as violence. But it is an imposition of culture on the child's body and through the child's body. Prior to language, this is mostly how parents accomplish this entry of the child into the cultural order. Hitting a child is still legal and almost universally practised because it's not thought to be violence. Indeed, it's mostly understood as a necessary and even protective practice in relation to children who don't yet have language. Many parents hit children for their own safety, but also to literally impress on them the importance of particular ways of behaving, of holding a fork, of sitting, of forms of address, of demeanour. Stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about was an often heard and unremarked upon refrain in the landscape of my 1960s working class London childhood. And it's instructive in its insistence that through hitting, in this instance, something to cry about, but the, could, the point could apply more generally, the prohibited behaviour, in this instance something to cry about, but it could apply more generally, can be repressed. So this insistence that somehow bodily restraint and hitting and harm can um, enculturate and socialise the child. And that idea is much more broadly accepted and part of an almost common sense of everyday life than I think we're often willing to recognise. So I'm contextualising then the kinds of everyday unremarkable violence that children and young people endure or encounter as the infliction of bodily harms that are intended to have specific cultural and social effects. And I'm suggesting, furthermore, that violence is motivated. It's not random, it's not pointless, it has a purpose. So to undo violence as a general social or cultural practice, the place to start is not necessarily with the harm itself, important as that is in individual cases, but with the motivation or intention that lies beneath the acts of violence. <clears throat> Counterintuitively, the intention of everyday violence against children is not, as I'm saying, to unmake the world or damage individuals, as it is when it's applied to adults, but to make the world by incorporating the child into it in specific ways. These modes of incorporation, that is modes that act on or, in, or through the corporeal, the body, for example, hitting, circumcision, piercing, and various forms of restraint, can be thought of as technologies of domination. And at the same time, particularly in the transition to adulthood, coming to the other end of childhood, Young people themselves use bodily techniques or techniques of the self in their own search for social recognition. The struggle for social recognition then seems to go to the heart of the forms of violence that children are both subjected to and then themselves as they become older engage in. <clears throat> in the edited collection that I spoke about earlier, Claudia Seymour's chapter on her research in uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, much misnamed, um, her young respondents, she argues, deploy narratives about their experiences of violence to attain recognition from a wider public and in doing so find a way through which they can cease to experience violence again. Deborah Haynes, a practitioner with many years' experience working in humanitarian relief, suggests that children and their parents believe that education will restore their social position and provide a mechanism through which their children will eventually attain social recognition. In the orphanages that Amandine Bollinger describes in India and West Africa, violence is directed at children who have lost their tenuous purchase on social personhood. 
And here violence does indeed unmake the work, their world. In both Chris Kovacs Bernard's work on street children in Haiti and Nellie Alley's on street girls in Cairo, the children struggle with daily forms of violence that unmake their world, but are also violent towards one another, using violence to defend their claims to social recognition and to mark out particular forms of what we might think of as abject social personhood. In the absence of other resources, what I'm suggesting is that for adolescents, the body itself is deployed as a resource in the struggle for social recognition, and this deployment of the body often involves violence. Amongst this general category of persons, the young, the poor, are more likely than other classes to deploy, shape or inscribe their bodies in this search for social recognition. And particularly the young, whose access to material and symbolically valued resources is even more constrained than adults of the same class, are particularly likely to focus on the affordances of their bodies in this search for social recognition. Practitioners and academics have radically different attitudes or dispositions towards child saving. A divergence that brings to mind Gramsci's injunction to exercise pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. Academics, particularly within anthropology and cultural studies, often see our role as to explicate with precision the social processes through which subjects are made and undone, and the best way we feel we can do this is to bear witness to the circumstances of their lives. Thus, Chris Kovacs Bernard, in his writing on street children in Haiti, exposes the relentless violence on the context in which Haitians live and of the specific and escalating violence that some children enact on one another. Nelly Ali, in her work and her writing on street girls in Cairo, describes the violence that girls experience at home that leads them to leave for the streets where they are subjected to more violence at the hands of adults, both men and women, and children, both boys and girls. A relentless violence pervades their lives. However, where Kovacs Bernhardt, an anthropologist, sees little scope for children finding any protection from this relentless violence, Ali offers Hope, the charity she volunteered with in Cairo, as a space of at least partial redemption or respite. Another practitioner, Amandine Bollinger, recounts how orphanages for children affected by AIDS provide a safe space away from the violence, including witchcraft accusation and neglect, including abandonment, that children affected by AIDS face in their communities and extended families. Claudia Seymour recounts how, in DRC, young people try to exert some control over their lives despite living in what she calls structures of violence, these tangible, visceral, embodied impacts of structural violence. She cautions that child protection agencies stimulate a kind of valorising of vulnerability that may fix young people in their violently formed identities of victims of rape or child soldiers, for example, and notes the extreme gap between a belief in child protection, as set out in the UNCRC, and the realities of everyday life in these contexts of ongoing political violence. So again, she has this, this pessimism of the intellect. She sets out with great clarity how these children experience their lives and the place of violence in their lives, but she feels that already there is little we can do other than kind of almost witness um, with, with uh, as much veracity as possible their, their circumstances. But Deborah Haynes, ranging across a number of contexts in which she's been involved in working with NGOs, again a practitioner, 
to secure educa educational provision for children in the aftermath of war insists on the capacity of schools to provide this space for children to explore, imitate and resolve their feelings about the violence and social breakdown they have witnessed. Alma Gottlieb points to how culture, in the specific context of the Beng people in uh, Ivory Coast, but implicitly everywhere, makes its imprint on children's bodies in ways that can seem harsh and potentially dangerous. And she suggests that the social isolation that would befall the child and her mother if the practices she describes of daily enemas and deliberately prolonged hunger were not adhered to is more dangerous for the child than the practices themselves. So not only witnessing, but actually saying that in some instances, uh, going back in a way to Sherpa Hughes and Bourgeois' point and definitely to Corbyn's point, violence is, ne is necessary. Academics, myself included then, seem to take Gramsci's exhortation to exercise pessimism of the intellect very much to heart often concerned that interventions intended to rescue children will obscure or elide the continuation of violence and gloss over its persistence, or even may become new sites for violence to be enacted. Seeing no likelihood of an end to violence within the current global epoch, we hope that an accurate and powerful witnessing of those experiences may have some effect eventually in diminishing the violence of everyday life, or perhaps that simply witnessing is, at this particular moment, in the global political economy, the best that we can do. In contrast, the practitioners seem to take to heart Gramsci's uh, injunction to exercise optimism of the will, and remain convinced of the ability of small-scale local interventions to make a difference in the lives of these children in this place. And here, too, social recognition is an important concept, in the children's everyday lives, outside of the institutions of child saving, if I can use that term for, say, schools, orphanages and shelters, they are subjected, that is, made social persons in and through violence, the everyday kinds of violence that I've been talking about, as well as the wider, perhaps, political context of conflict. But in these institutions, and partly as a consequence of the global dissemination of psychologically informed ideas about children's capacities and vulnerabilities, they're offered new ways of gaining social recognition through dialogue and self-reflection. So having explored violence and its role in shaping young subjectivities in everyday contexts, I finally want to turn to the question of children and young people's experience of violence during state conflict and how this impacts on their subjectivities. In the wake of conflicts where children seem to figure centrally in the enactment of violence, child and youth soldiers have attracted a significant amount of academic and policy attention. The campaign for an optional protocol to the UN Convention on the involvement of children in armed conflict also generated considerable interest in this problem of child soldiering. But this focus on children and youth fighting in wars was often to the detriment of attention to the much wider impacts of militarisation and political violence on young lives. Attending to the impacts of violence on subjectivity may be taken to implicitly reject the widening of the concept of violence from corporeal harm, actual or threatened, to structural violence, while recognising that even when the threat of actual corporeal violence recedes, it shapes the context in which children and young people struggle to become somebody or to be made subjects. 
So if subjectivity is a double-sided concept, it refers to both being subjected to and coming into social existence as a subject. And it's therefore simultaneously the precondition of agency. One has to be a subject before one can exercise agency and the condition of being shaped by social and cultural forces and practices that limit or shape the extent of our personhood, often in very oppressive ways. This relationship between subjectivity and social identity is not straightforward. It's often presumed, through the assertion that all people have social identities, that these socially ascribed positions, really, such as ethnicity, gender and sexuality, are taken up by individuals as meaningful self-descriptions that they are deeply and self-reflexively invested in. But I want to suggest that if we attend to the particular practices through which subjectivities are made, and in the context of war that might include conscription, patronage, recruitment, participation, we see the operation of techniques that are usually obscure to us because they are so naturalised. So, in other words, in the context outside of war, the processes in which people start to invest in ideas of having a gendered or a racialized or a classed identity are more or less invisible because they seem so seamless. But in the context of war, as I'm going to come on to describe, often these processes are very much disrupted and, and contested and ideas about what it means to have a gender or particularly an ethnicity and a class position are radically disrupted and so new forms of subjectivity are claimed and invested in. Context of conflict, that is to say, unsettle the natural order of things and expose their social cultural origins. And the fragility of social identity is made visible precisely at these moments when it's open to contestation. Although paradoxically, it's also precisely in these moments that identity claims often harden. Conflict and post conflict settlements reveal the extent to which the adoption of a social identity is as often strategic or relational as it is taken for granted and identificatory. So in the remaining time, I want to identify um, three ways, or perhaps two ways, in which violence and subjectivity are interrelated for children and youth in contexts of political conflict and war, in particular transitions to adulthood and the formation of social identities. So transitions to adulthood um, in these contexts of, of political violence The the role of violence in transition to adulthood, particularly for young men, has figured prominently in the academic literature on war and security. So-called youth bulges in sub-Saharan Africa are widely seen as simultaneously generating risk and opportunity. The risk of violence from underemployed, disenfranchised young men and the opportunities for economic development, if this generation can be mobilised, has been thoroughly explored in academic and policy literature. The social character of transitions to adulthood is, how, is a recent theme, however, in this literature, acknowledging that becoming an adult is a cultural and social accomplishment. Clearly, the end of childhood is related to biological maturity, but biological maturity is not sufficient in itself to command the social recognition of adult status. The extension of the category of youth in Sierra Leone and Rwanda to 35-year-olds, which might please some people in this room, is precisely indicative of the socio-cultural character of transitions into adulthood. Patrick Tom, in his doctoral research, confirms that in Sierra Leone, a youth, quote, can be any individual who is unmarried, landless, and lacking political and economic power. 
However, the difficulties of transitioning to adulthood in contexts of scarcity and insecurity are further compounded by the shattering of social networks and cultural institutions through war that have redefined adulthood in almost entirely economic terms, measuring it out in bricks or roof tiles, as described in Mark Summers' important work, Stuck, about post-conflict Rwanda. In such contexts of extreme scarcity, war can facilitate transitions that would otherwise be blocked. In Sierra Leone, as Patrick Tom notes, the political and economic marginalisation of youth, particularly young men, made them easy recruits for the Revolutionary United Front as they sought to gain respect and power and status over the big men. Similarly, in Rwanda, Lindsay McLean Hauker comments on the ability of those organising the genocide to mobilise underemployed and unemployed Hutu rural youth with the promise of material rewards and status. The earlier exclusion of Tutsi youth from university education by the Hutu-dominated government had led to Tutsi young men leaving Rwanda to join the RPF in the 90s. Nor is the role of war in facilitating transitions to adulthood only present in contexts of civil war and economic insecurity. Siobhan McAvoy-Levi, in her paper on Israeli and Palestinian youth, argues that through conscription, the state militarises its youth into citizenship and that military service itself is every young Israeli's right of passage to full citizenship and adulthood. Conversely, she suggests that in Palestine, activists are seeking new, non-violent modes of resistance to avoid getting stuck. In a different register, in my own work, my analysis of army cadet recruitment here in the UK shows how working-class boys are encouraged through specific techniques of government to discipline their bodies through immersion in military-style practices in order to open up spaces for a respectable transition to adulthood. To the extent that war is facilitative of transitions to adulthood, the pathways through which these transitions are often temporarily secured are deeply gendered. Transitions to adulthood for girls in contexts of scarcity are often easier to accomplish than for boys because their transitions are closely tied to childbirth. However, the sexual violence that girls are subjected to through war and state insecurity generate a complex and troubled transition to adulthood. For boys, war may also be violent and frightening, but it nonetheless provides access to resources and to status that often abruptly makes men out of boys. And even if the end of war forecloses the transition and may return them to an uneasy boyhood. These contrasts between the gender transitions to adulthood of boys and girls are also relational, even if girls' transitions are somehow simpler to accomplish. If respectable adulthood is tied to heterosexual marriage within a patriarchal order, then girls also become stuck in weighthood if boys can't accumulate the resources that they need to be recognised as men. So there's a relationality between the ways that boys transition to adulthood and the ways that girls do. Here, respectability is significant, for although childbirth makes women out of girls, respectable adulthood often demands marriage and acknowledged paternity, neither of which is necessarily forthcoming during military conflict. Or, as Coulter showed in her ethnographic study of Sierra Leone girls after the Civil War, Bush husbands may not be accepted by the girls' family as legitimate husbands and fathers. In Palestine, boys migrate to become men, and those that stay cannot afford houses and marriage. Girls are more likely to stay in Palestine than migrate, and are thus waiting for adulthood, with few socio-economic possibilities for achieving it. 
If war facilitates particularly abrupt transitions to adulthood, the post-conflict settlement seems to be equally abrupt in its restoration of a generational order that excludes young people and blocks their transitions to adulthood. This reversal of a status that boys had during a war to a status that they lose after the conflict can be seen in many historical and contemporary settings, including Northern Ireland, Palestine, Sierra Leone, DRC, Rwanda, and perhaps most famously, South Africa. In response to post-conflict exclusions, youth strategize to either position themselves within the existing global order or leverage global discourses, the rights of the child, for example, to open up new spaces in the local order to advance their generational interests. In the DRC, Claudia Seymour describes what she calls the tactical weakness deployed by the participants in her research who felt that the only way to provide for themselves, let alone advance, was to position themselves as petitioners to more powerful patrons, herself included. The efficacy of this strategy is effectively illustrated in her paper by a young man who, through his allegiance to Laurent Nenkunda, secures resources, Laurent Nenkunda was a militia leader, uh, secures resources, including education, largely unavailable to those children and youth who are rescued by an NGO, and were now, she says, languishing in the various interim care centres in Goma. Although Patrick Tom's respondents adopted a different strategy, attempting to disrupt the power of paramount chiefs through citing human rights discourses, the principle remained that in a generational order now close to their advancement, children and youth need new strategies. Siobhan McAllister, writing about communities' assessments of the peace agreement in Northern Ireland, suggests that the exclusion of young people from political platforms renders the peace agreement fragile and continues to do so, and that working-class young men are vulnerable now to being mobilised by sectarianism. So finally, I'm just going to talk briefly about gender and ethnicity before drawing to a conclusion. So the actual practices through which we come to understand ourselves as people with a gender and an ethnicity are the clearest examples of the double meaning of subjectivity that I've spoken about. These practices subject us to the will of others and at the same time produce a subject, our gendered, racialised selves, who can then act from this position of being socially recognised people. There is a significant body of literature on how this work gets done in early childhood and through the family and the school but less attention has been paid to conflict and violence in the formation of young social identities. War and conflict produce gendered and racialised persons in a constant backwards and forwards movement between subjection and subject-making. As the papers published in our special issue show, young social identities are both persistent and fragile, and violence plays an important role in unmaking and remaking social identity. In McLean Hilker's paper, for example... She explores the discourses of gendered ethnicity and ethnicised gender that continue to circulate in Rwanda despite the government prohibition against ethnic identification. These discourses continue to shape young people's lives, even though they disavow them for themselves. McAvoy Levi shows how masculinity is shored up through the figure of the, of the soldier who claims to be defending women and girls and the feminine nation. Children and youth living in conflict and post-conflict settings inhabit subjectivities that are simultaneously the ground of their subjugation and the possibility for their agency as subjects. War both facilitates transitions to adulthood and exposes youth to violence that may well end their lives. 
The end of conflict opens up possibilities for peace, but simultaneously closes down the space for youth agency in its restoration of the generational order. War generates an attachment to national identities, but may also fracture them, particularly in post-colonial states. Political conflict shapes community identities, but on the other side of solidarity and belonging is sectarianism and constraint. Finally, these processes are gendered and racialized, not only in that, for example, transitions to adulthood follow different, although relational pathways for boys and girls, but also in the way that the borders of gender, ethnic, religious, national identity are constructed and policed through violence. I began this paper with a question, why are children more likely to be subjected to violence than other social groups? And what I've suggested in this paper is the answer to that question lies in understanding the purposes of violence, not in order to condone it, but in the belief that forms of corporeal harm against children and young people can only be undone when the logic of its practice unravels.